<clears throat> okay, we'll go ahead and get started here. We've got quite a bit of material to cover. I will say this, uh, we will finish with uh, chapter 3 this morning, and then uh, Brother Larry will be taking over next week and uh, picking up with chapter 4. So hopefully we can get to the end of it. If not, we'll, we'll stop there and let Larry continue with uh, chapter 4. We stopped off last week talking about um, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Uh, and that reads, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And as we were talking about this last week, of course, what we were talking about is that in this story, Jesus is using the illustration out of the Old Testament, which is specifically in uh, Numbers chapter 21. He encouraged you to, to go refresh your memory on that story where the um, children of Israel had, had uh, sinned. They had been disobedient. They were complaining. Uh, they were complaining about the manna. Uh, didn't like it. Everything seemed to displease them. And as a consequence of that... <coughs> uh, the Lord sent fiery serpents to bite them, and, and these were deadly serpents, so many of them were, were dying. And uh, uh, so once they turned back to God, uh, God led Moses to produce this serpent, a bronze serpent on a pole, and to, to be healed from those snake bites, and they were to look to that, to that, uh, to that serpent, and then they would be healed. Um, in the process of doing this, uh, the point that Brother uh, Massagel was making is, is that penalty for sin is suffering and death and that salvation is based on a system of faith. And what the snake represented in this, in this uh, uh, example that Jesus used was an, an offering for sin. And so he focused in on salvation I mentioned to you last week that he spent a significant time in his lesson talking about the different kinds of salvation, and we just didn't take time to do that. Instead, we focused on what salvation is in Christianity, and salvation is a system that's, that's based on faith. Uh, salvation from sin and death is achieved uh, when God provides an atonement or a payment for sin, and man believes and trusts that God... God's atonement removes his sin and, and therefore saves him. And of course, Jesus is that, is that atonement that, that represents the, the, the fiery serpent uh, in that story uh, represented the disobedience and the murmuring of the, uh, the people. And that, that was simple. Um, In this example, Jesus is looking ahead to his crucifixion and he is establishing that, that God's final payment for atonement for all sins, uh, the sins, you know, of course, being all acts of disobedience by everyone across all time. Uh, the penalty is, is not poisonous snakes. It is the eternal death of hell. It is eternal damnation to hell. And the atonement of God is Jesus' perfect life that He lived that is offered up as a sacrifice for those sins, for everyone's sins across all time on, on the cross of Calvary. 
And um, we look, look back to the example out of Numbers, whoever complied with what they were directed to do, uh, uh, they were uh, delivered, they were, they were healed. Uh, the snake, as I said, represented an offering for sins. And similarly, there's, there's no salvation for us except through Christ and through a, a similar compliance, a compliance to, to His will. Whoever believeth may in Him have eternal life. That's what the verse read for us. baptized into Christ after having first of all believed in the gospel and then repented of our sins confessed our faith in him and, and this prom promise is not simply to the, the believer but to the believer that is in him, in Christ, his spiritual body, the church um, and this, this response of faith that we're talking about and this trust in Jesus is in, in our repentance and in Baptism, which uh, relives the cross of Christ, and is is what what Jesus was explaining to to Nicodemus. We're going to have hopefully we'll have time to get into some other things too. We'll talk about baptism here as we'll we'll move along. Um, and so we come to John three sixteen, probably one of the most, if not the most, well known verse in the world. Would you argue that? I mean, you turn your TV on, you watch a football game, you're going to see somebody holding a sign. Uh, you stop somebody on the street and ask them what John 3.16 says. Well, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish uh, but have eternal life. Perhaps the most universally familiar verse in the Bible is what you could argue. And often referred to as the golden text. I don't know who came up with that term, but we hear that. In it, we're told this. We're told who the greatest giver is. That's God. Um, what the greatest gift is, which is His only begotten Son. And, and the greatest measure that it covers, which is the world. And then the greatest future life that we all have ahead of us if we, if we obey Him, and that's eternal life. For God so loved the world. That, that's the motivation part. That's the grace part that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the atonement part. That's the payment for sins as we've already talked about. That whoever believes in Him, there's the system. It's a system of faith. A system of belief. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's the promise. There's the salvation. It refutes atheism. It teaches that, that Jesus came to earth and He made salvation possible because why? Because God loved us. It teaches us that salvation is for everyone, universally for everyone. And then some say this, this offers salvation, you know, of course, merely and solely on the basis of believing. 
because baptism is excluded. Well, repentance is also excluded. So, you know, you could, you could argue, therefore, that, that you should, you know, you would have to use that same erroneous logic and exclude repentance from salvation as well in that same argument. Faith in Jesus is expressed through repentance uh, and baptism and sincere Christian living. God's justice is punishment for sin. God's love is payment for sin. And we can be sure of those two things. No one goes to heaven unless a change takes place here on earth first. And then that, that, that change takes place in a per- particular way. It is powered by God. And it is based on faith in Christ. And it happens when? It happens at baptism. Baptism demonstrates our faith. Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith. You know, when we're baptized, we're re reenacting His death, burial, and res- resurrection. And when we're baptized, we, we crucify the old person by repenting of our sins and then being buried in that water, in the water of baptism. Now, um, tradition has it that, uh, that, of course, that Nicodemus uh, demonstrated some things to us, and we've been talking about that. But tradition has it that uh, later on, uh, this is not recorded in Scripture, but rather tradition, that he was put out of the Sanhedrin and that he was baptized by Peter and John. Uh, and then at his death, he was, he was buried in a common grave with the Christians. I don't have Scripture to back that up, but that is what tradition says. So what, you know, kind of recapping a little bit back here, what we've covered these last couple of weeks and talking about, about Nicodemus. Um, in Jesus, in John chapter three, verses one through sixteen, Jesus is revealing to Nicodemus the mystery of the gospel. You know, Paul talks about that mystery. You know, over in Romans sixteen twenty-five. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and this preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. The mystery is. How you get to eternal life. That's what the mystery is. And you you look at John 3.16, it kind of compresses all of that into a very few words. Uh, That being the the mystery of of eternal life. It summarizes God's plan and and God's purpose for for sending Jesus. And so, so, so Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be changed. You have to be reborn in the Spirit and in the water. So, so we have to realize that, again, as we've said before, that, that this was probably kind of hard for, for Nicodemus to understand because you know, Jesus had, had not yet died on the cross. He, he had not yet been resurrected. So, you know, in all fairness, Nicodemus did not have the same information that you and I have. He did not have the benefit of the Scripture. But for now, the change he needed to make 
was to do this. It was to humble himself before Jesus and, and, and be baptized. And, and their baptism was an expression of their faith, but of course it is now as well. We, we understand that. We are baptized today as an expression of our faith that, that Jesus takes away our sins. Later on, when the, the gospel was preached, the details of the kingdom then would be, you know, be explained. And, and I think Nicodemus would then be able to, to grasp much more fully what the, the meaning of this was and the, the value of what Jesus was giving to him. So let's move along here. Uh, I failed to move my slides along as usual. Thinking about it. Kind of finishes up what was his lesson six. I'm going to move into lesson seven. And I'm kind of compressing things. I've taken some of the things out that, that he covered uh, that I think are where we need to focus. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If Jesus did not come as judge, the entire world... would be condemned. And the punishment would have already been handed out if Jesus didn't come. Jesus uh, came as the Savior, not judge. He came as the Savior. And through Jesus, the world has an opportunity for salvation. There will be a time for judgment. We know when the judgment will occur. It will be on the judgment day, the final day. But Jesus was coming to die on the cross, not for a time of judgment. Verse 18 reads, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If, If Jesus didn't come to judge, then then why are men still condemned? Well, the answer is that judgment is based either on belief or disbelief. That's, that's the dividing point for judgment. Some believe and some don't. And so you don't have to wait really to the last day as a consequence or as a result of the judgment or for the result of the judgment. Jesus is very clear here. He says those who believe, they're saved. Those who disbelieved, they're already judged. Now, you can... You can lose that salvation. How? By, by going back to disbelief, back into the world, and back to sin. Verses uh, 19 through 21, let's read through those quickly. And this is the condemnation, and the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. In verse uh, 3, he, he expresses why this judgment is correct. To silence those who, who take exception to, to his pronouncement here. Nicodemus might have said, well, now just wait a minute. Who are you to judge? So in verse 19, he says the word light, proper, light with a capital L. And that refers back to Jesus and the truth that he brings and the 
the plan that he reveals to God concerning men. So, so the light came into the world, and that's the mystery revealed. It's Jesus coming to explain who he is. That's the light. He came into the world, and when people come in contact with the light, some make a choice. They choose the darkness because why? Because they love sin and evil more than they love God and more than they love the truth. What's the biggest reason why people don't respond to the gospel when, when you actually preach it to them? Simple answer. They love their sins more than they love God. It isn't that they can't understand it. It's that they desire to have one thing over the other. And that's the main reason people don't want to talk about religion out in the world there or the gospel because they love the darkness that they're in. Uh, Whatever that is. More than the possibility of light. And, and, And I think that's an explanation or one explanation as to why religion is such a touchy subject with a lot of people. If you start talking to somebody about religion, eventually you've got to come around and talk about sin, and more specifically about their sin. And then they're, they're going to have to acknowledge their sin, and, and nobody wants to talk about their sins. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, be ready. The light will come into the world, but not everybody will step into the light. And that's why many will not be converted. Or why certain, let me, let me carry it, maybe get home to us a little more, why certain Christians don't grow. They love their sins more than they love Christ. Verse 20 says, Not only do people who choose the darkness over the light once they do that, they actually hate it. They hate the light. A lot of the world today hates the light. That's obvious, isn't it, to us? And it, it seems more blatant and blatant as day goes on, days go on. Um, and, of course, we have this massive media machine out there that, that pushes that. Um, some people who hear and reject the gospel actually are some of our worst enemies. Uh, They they speak against the church or maybe the preacher or the Bible or against what they they know is right. They they run away from the light because they want to remain, as we've already said, where they are. They don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be made to feel guilty. They want their sins. They love their sins. So Jesus is in verse 20 here comparing two people. One is the person who comes to the light, but his love for sin brings him back into the darkness where he would rather be where he can avoid the light. The other person is one who practices truth. He's, he's accepted the truth. He's the light shine. He, he, he lets the light shine on him or her. And, and, and they follow the light. 
The one who comes to the light is, is not afraid of it because it does two things. It, it shows where his sins are and how to get rid of them. And that's what Jesus said to, to Nic- Nicodemus. He said, you need to be born again. He's telling him how to get rid of them. Secondly, the light also reveals the good things that, that God will work in a person, which includes eternal life. Light just doesn't shine on what the sins are. It also reveals the eternal life. So, we ought to be thankful for the plan of salvation, that Jesus died on the cross and that He was resurrected. And, and, and through Him... Our, and through our obedience to Him, we all have the hope of a salvation. Um, there was one example that Brother Masalongo used in, in uh, his video lesson that uh, I, I thought was proper and good to share with you. Uh, it was, uh, he, he was speaking of a, a minister out in the Oklahoma City area, and I'm guessing Brother Masalongo was out there too because he put it in that context. At least at the time of those recordings, that's where he was located at. But this minister's name is Bill Day. And you all remember the, uh, the tragedy with the Edward R. Murrah, what is it, uh, Murrah, Murrah building that got blown up. Uh, and so many kids and people were killed. You know, well, this brother Bill Day's sister was killed in that, in that tragedy. And we remember it, it was tragic. And, and we also remember how the media handled it as they do most everything else, don't they? Well, all of them showed up in, in Oklahoma City trying to find people to talk to. One of them was Larry King. We all know who Larry King is. And so he went down there and did his talk show there. And he actually had this brother Bill Day there to talk to him. Uh, and he asked him, he says, you're a minister, right? And, and brother Day says, yes, sir, I am. And he says, so... so in a sarcastic way, Larry King says, well, how do you feel about God now? And, you know, what a question, you know. Does that not say volumes about Larry King's heart right there? But how do you feel about God now? Now that your sister's dead in this bombing, how do you feel about God? As if God is responsible for that. Well, uh, Brother Masalongo says that without hesitation Brother Day said this my sister dying in the bombing has absolutely nothing to do with the empty grave on Sunday morning the grave is still empty in other words Jesus Jesus is still risen no matter what bad people do no matter, no matter that this gentleman's sister died, that, that's a tragic thing, but it has no effect on the truth that the grave was found empty because Jesus resurrected from the grave. And that, that was just a terrific answer. We sing a song, I Believe in Jesus. I believe in the one they call Jesus. I believe he died on Mount Calvary. 
And I believe that the tomb was found empty. And I believe he's the answer for me. Moving along here um, into the eighth lesson uh, starts to deal with the latter part of John chapter 3. And so let me get into that and move along here as, as time is getting away from us and I'm probably not going to be able to get to the end. I'm going to try to as best I can. So in John chapter 3 verses 22 through 30, John the Baptist is giving testimony about Jesus. And, and you know, there was some discussion back in, in the very first lesson that we had uh, about John the Baptist. And here we have what is called the final testimony of John the Baptist. I think it's just, it's, it's put in that context because uh, um, it's the last one that was recorded. Let's, let's say that in, in Scripture that we are aware of. Verse 22, Jesus and His di- disciples traveled to Judea where He spends some time there and He's baptizing. And then later, uh, over in, in uh, chapter 4, as I'm sure uh, Brother Larry will bring out, John clarifies that it wasn't Jesus who was doing the baptizing, but rather His disciples. Jesus was doing, I guess, what we would call the preaching, the teaching, so his disciples were doing uh, the baptism. And, and we need to notice that pattern there. Pretty simple pattern. Uh, people hear the gospel. They respond in faith. And that response includes baptism. Baptism we keep emphasizing, we're going to keep emphasizing, uh, inherent part of our, the process of us having our salvation uh, and so, we're encountering the word baptism quite a bit, and I think it's of value here for us to look at the word baptize, or baptism, since we will see that, that John makes reference to it, and we need to understand how it's used. We need to understand it. Baptism. That's the word we use, but the Greek word is baptizo. Baptizo. It's not, the word baptize is is not an English word. It's an Anglicized version of the original Greek word, baptizo. It didn't exist until they did the King James Version translation. They made it up, if you will. It is transliterated instead of translated. The Greek word is baptizo. The English word that they created was baptized. Baptizo means to completely dip or submerge something in water. It means to be completely submerged beneath the water. And the practice of immersion in water existed for centuries before it began to be altered as early as we think the 4th century A.D. And then in more in the later in the seventh century it was more commonly replaced with sprinkling. Well, King James and the translators of the King James Version Bible were members of the Church of England. And that their mode of baptism was sprinkling. 
So to get around this problem, well, you know, we have the word baptizo, which means to immerse, but they're not immersing, they're sprinkling. So how, how, how do we cover ourselves here? So to get around that, uh, that problem, if you will, of translating baptize correctly to, or baptizo correctly to the correct word, which is immerse, or immersion, they chose to use this transliterated word baptism instead. Immersion is the correct translation for the word baptizo. And as we look, there's 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 several types of baptism that are that are practiced uh, and were practiced in those days. So, so people would have been familiar with the term in those days. You know, proselytes who converted to Judaism, uh, uh, they had to be circumcised first, and then baptism, and then they would offer a sacrifice in order to enter into the into the Jewish faith. Uh, there was John the Baptist. Uh, baptism, Matthew 3 and verse 11. It was immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins and for preparation of, of the kingdom or for the kingdom to come. It was an expression of faith that, that this time is, hand, is at hand, that the kingdom is going to come. And if you, if you believed John when John said, the Messiah is coming, then your response of faith was to come forward and be baptized for the mission of your sins, but also to prepare yourself for the coming kingdom. And then there also was the baptism of suffering. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't forward, forward my, my slide again. The baptism of suffering in Mark 10 and verse 38. <clears throat> and here the word refers to the idea of being overwhelmed or are completely covered with suffering. Not with water, but with suffering. Jesus is said to be immersed in suffering. His, his baptism of suffering. Jesus, you know, said to John, are you willing to do what I'm willing to do? Or what I'm going to do? Are you willing to have the baptism that I'm going to have? Can you have that baptism that I'm going to have? The suffering that I'm going to have, can you do that? That's what he's saying to John. And then there's another mention, the baptism of fire. I think I went too far. There, sorry. Baptism of fire. Matthew 3 and verse 11, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 13. And this is a, a reference to testing and to judgment. Paul said... The work of the saved would be tested by fire. The ministry, the service that they do, it will be tested. It will be judged by fire. And, and for the unsaved, that judgment is punishment and suffering. And there, there's other uses. There's the baptism of with or in the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 verse 33 and Acts 2.17. But then there's the New Testament baptism of Jesus. Mark 16, 15, and 16. And He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. 
So we've mentioned a few baptisms. Uh, of all those that we've mentioned, this is the one that we're to do today. It's the one we must do today. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It was required. Baptism was required by everyone who believed in his resurrection. Acts 2.38, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's just so clear, isn't it? It's just so clear. Yet, it's, it's hard to understand how, how people do not understand it or miss it or fight it, push back on it. I guess. Here, here pre, Peter preaches the first sermon and people are asking him, what should we do? Now, take note of that. They, they didn't ask him what to think or what to feel in their heart. They said, what, what, are, what should we do? You know, they've recognized their situation already and they say, what do we do? And what does, Jesus, what does Peter say? You have to be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's what Peter said. You have to be baptized for the remission of your sins. He didn't say, oh, just say the sinner's prayer and everything will be fine. Did he say that? He didn't say that. You don't find the sinner's prayer in Scripture. He said, you have to be baptized. And we can't change what Peter said. We can't change what's in the Scripture. Yeah. Yes, Larry. Uh, just a comment there. Uh, also coming from what uh, Mike just mentioned, and you expressed, you know, it is so clear, so how in the world can people not see it? Yes, they do have to be trained to misunderstand it. But I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons is that people who have been schooled for centuries in the faith-only doctrine, that we're saved by faith only, and that word only is added. It's not in the original, but they have to add it to have their doctrine. And so people begin with that. That's their premise, which is unbiblical because it's not in Scripture, but that's where they begin. And so they will look at Scriptures like Mark 16, 15, 16, Acts 2, 38, and others, where it is so crystal clear. But they will say this, and you'll read this a lot of times in articles. It will be prefaced by saying, as it looks like, this is saying that baptism is necessary. But as we all know, we're saved by faith only. Therefore... This cannot mean that. It has to mean something else. And then they proceed to give other explanations. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, it's brainwashing. Yeah. Well, it's just like, I mean, you say you don't understand why 
people don't understand it, but it's the same thing with sin in general, like homosexuality. I mean, it's not hard to look in the Bible and see that God condemns it, but yet people still say, you know, Well, the buzzer has buzzed. Uh, I didn't get done as I thought, but uh, I think we need to, you know, move forward with chapter four. So we're going to end there. Uh, the this chapter concludes with you know uh, another testimony. I will make this comment. There are some that think that uh, beginning in about verse thirty-one that that's actually John the Baptist. I'm sorry, John the Apostle's testimony. Some some have taught that. Um, as opposed to it being a continuation of John, uh, John the Baptist's testimony. Uh, last last portion of verse thirty four implies that it's a in that in that line of thought there that it's a time following the day of Pentecost when when the Spirit you know the Spirit's powers were in measure. So it's, that's where the kind of conclusion comes from. But we'll stop there. And I'll turn it over to Larry uh, next week, and we'll study uh, chapter 4. Thank you for your comments and time.